business suit, letting go, and one is a woman that is trying to grab him from the other trapeze, and so he's hanging out in midair. Give me a word. Wow, that was really... Am I going to have to go out like one at a time here? Scary. All right, Diane's down here scary. She's like, I don't want to do that. What else? Trust. Trust. What else? 911. What is it? Safety. A leap. All right. Another a word. A word. Fallen. <laughs> You're ready to have him fall. Aren't you? Pray. Uh oh. Help. Friday night. I have to talk to you about that, GJ, afterwards. Friday night. All right. Oh, okay. Any other words that come to your mind just looking at that little picture? What? Faith. Partnership. Oops. You're really worried over here. This section is like crazy. Vulnerable. Help. You guys are good. Backwards. Yeah, there you go. All right. So what we're talking about today is going to entail two words, and I think most of them were there. I, I mean, most of those were good. Uh, you got one of them. Faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. I'm not why, totally sure yet why God said you need to speak on this subject for us as a, a body and for individuals. When I finished up last week, I'm like, really? It's like, no. You need to speak on this. And one of the reasons I believe that we're to speak on this is because this is so, so commonplace with us, especially if you're a follower of Christ this morning. We vacillate between these two. Faith, doubt, doubt, faith. Anybody got this one figured out yet? If we're all honest, we wrestle with this. It's actually a book called Faith and Doubt, and the whole idea found this picture concerning the trapeze idea comes um, out of the last chapter of that book. It's by John Ortberg, and he says, no doubt. I want to read for you what he says. John Ortberg, if you know him, is just a great communicator. Jesus comes to the earth and actually lives this way. He lets go of life in heaven. He lets go of the glory. He lets go of the power. He lets go of the riches. And he is born in a little stable to obscure, impoverished parents. He grows up in a blue-collar family, working as a carpenter. He has an itinerant ministry as a homeless rabbi. Then he finally lets go of his ministry and lets go of his disciples. See, a lot of times we think of Jesus as, oh, man, he's got it, you know, he's got it together, and he does, those kinds of things. But live inside the life of God himself, come in the flesh to this earth and what he did. Okay? And then he comes to the end, facing the cross. Orberg says, the word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that a trapeze artist has to let go of, comes from the ancient trapeze, meaning table. About the only time it is used in the New Testament is when the writer claims that Jesus gathers his friends around the table, the trapeze, the trapeze, what we now call the communion table. 
and teaches them that they will have to let go of his life for them and that the only way to hang on to one's life is to let it go. Then he climbs the cross and lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours with his hands stretched out, not moving a muscle, and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed. When he did that, he was saving us, and he was teaching us about trust. Here's the leap. God comes to you and says, let go. Will you let go? God came to Abraham and said, let go of everything familiar. Let go of your family, your home, and your culture, and go where I tell you to go. Will you do that? Will you let go? Jesus came to a rich young ruler one day. He loved him. And he said, will you let go of the trapeze? The rich ruler's trapeze was called money. Will you give away all your possessions and sell them and give them to the poor and to come follow me? Jesus spoke to a woman caught in an adulterous affair. He said, go and sin no more. Will you let go of that relationship that you know dishonors God? What are you to let go of? Anything that will keep you from God. And he lists these. Let go of that relationship if it dishonors God. Let go of your attachment to money. Let go of your power. Be a servant. Let go of your addiction. Admit it. Get help. Let go of that habit. Let go of that grudge. Let go of your ego, your pride, your money, your reputation, your disobedience. God will come and he will say, let go. But then he says, wait. There's three things that take place in that type of picture. There is the letting go. There is the waiting and there is the grabbing hold. You see those? The letting go, the waiting, and the grabbing hold. Now, most of us said, hey, 911, scary, whatever, because we're looking at what part of the picture? We're looking at the middle part of the picture. What part's that? The waiting. I don't like waiting because I feel like I'm hanging in midair sometimes. When I'm in that equation. In fact, this hit home again with me this week. I mentioned last week uh, some of the transitions with the church issues going on. And, and we may address those. We'll definitely address them next Sunday night when we gather for the family potluck and stuff. But this week, um, you know, I was, I was trying to get a grip on my life. And there's some changes coming, those kinds of things. I mentioned last week that uh, we've uh, bought a home. We're building a home that's to be finished in December. Excited about that. And sort of you got to get all your monies together and try to figure this out. Do I qualify for the loan? Do I have enough to make this? And you're, you're saying, oh, okay, I don't know. I don't know. I need to let go, right? I need to let, and take the jump, finally. You think there's some reasonableness to take the jump to make the home purchase, all right? Because we rent right now. Well, I got news this week that after I have two homes back in Indiana, where I moved from three years ago, not because I want two homes, or even I didn't even want two then, but we had our, our big home we lived in, and then we had an adjacent smaller house that we just sort of kept because it was in our backyard, and we'd rent out people. I tried to sell the houses twice now, maybe three times. Put them on the market. Seemingly, they're upside down, at least the big one is, in part because they built a fire station across the road. And so it, like, changed the equation in my area. And so I'm like, okay, God, what am I going to do? I said, well, the little house came open. The renter moved down after two months. So I'm like, okay, we're going to try to find a renter. I haven't been able to find a renter for two months. 
And those of you that might have rental houses, you're like, that hurts because you have a mortgage usually to pay on those homes, right? Like, trusting God with that one. I'm so glad the guy in the big house has a two-year lease, and it won't be up until next year. We'll probably finish out the summer. I'm going to clean them up. I'm going to work on them again. We're going to put them on the market. I'm going to be done with those houses in Indiana, right? My wife would say, amen. <laughs> done with those houses in Indiana. Well, I got uh, an email this week after my uh, main guy is behind, like, three months' rent now. And I'm like, this guy's getting a little sideways on me. He keeps promising this and that, and he says, hey, I'm going to get you paid, this and that, but we are going to move out at the end of September. He's going to break the lease. Well, that house has a significant income through it to pay the mortgage on it. So I'm like, uh, I need those houses rented to be able to close on this house. You know what I'm saying? This stuff, and it starts to mess with you. Well, thankfully, that day I was also getting all my cars worked on, and at Mike Smith, uh, talking to him, and my wife had to stop by, drop a car off, and pick me up, that kind of thing. And if you don't know Mike and Karen Smith, they have a great business, and they are so trustworthy. But they have a place called a chapel. It's actually where Karen works behind a desk in a little trailer. And um, so I showed up, I shared a little bit, and they just said, hey, we're going to pray about this. I'm like, what? what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing what? I'm doubting. I'm going to fall. This isn't going to work. I'm not going to be able to close on the house. i got all these other financial things. This and that. Oh, my goodness. I've got to get back there and figure this out, right? It's like we're just going to pray for God to do this. Now, here's the thing. My wife had showed up to pick me up, and I had not yet told her that the renter in the big house was breaking the lease. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, honey, this is sort of what I just happened. Got an email. And she looks. She goes, you. She would give me the eye, right? The eye. Tell me these things. Why well, I keep finding out things from other people, my sons and everything. Tell me first. And so I, I told her. But then her response was so great. She just looked at me and she says, well, there you go, Carrie. We're going to sell it. I told you we need to sell those houses, not try to rent them again. And so they're both going to be empty now. Sell them. Right? And here's Mike and Karen. Let's circle up. We're on a pray belief. And I'm thinking, you don't know what this does financially to me. Where do you go? Where do you go in those situations? Doubt starts to consume you and fear starts to set in. And thank you guys because that was really helpful for me this week and being able to properly live before God and definitely coming to this talk today. I'm like, okay, God. So it's like, where does your spirit go when things are not going well? Troubled times, difficult times, something maybe, you know, God's spoken to you do, to do. do. Do you have that ability to let go? And then some of you say, well, yeah, I've, I've let, I let go. That's sort of not it. But you're hanging in midair, waiting, just waiting. Oh, my goodness. What are we going to do? We're just waiting. Well, I want to look at a story in the Old Testament today that some of you are familiar with. It's the story of Gideon. Gideon in chapter uh, 6 and 7 of Judges. And the story of Gideon um, is not some make-believe story long time ago. The story that we want to depict out of Scripture from Judges 6 and 7 relating to faith, uh, doubt, and trust is a place that's in Israel that you could go to today It's called the Jezreel Valley. So this story took place and culminated in the valley that you now see. 
That's a modern-day picture. All right? So if you've got your scriptures, you can open them. And we're just going to walk through uh, six particular thoughts concerning the story of Gideon and then relate it back to this whole thing of doubt, faith, and trust. So in Judges 6, we find that the Israelites were in a mess again. Now, Judges is a cycle. It goes over and over. They turn to God, and then they forget God, and they get in trouble, and they have to turn to God, all right? And sort of like our lives sometimes, I think Judges are, right? And so it says this in Judges 6.1, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And what I want to state here up front is this truth. God uses tough times to get our attention. A lot of times we're like, oh, really? I got these houses. What am I going to do? Right? Immediately turning towards the idea that maybe God wants to work here. Maybe God wants to show me something here. All right? The Midianites, uh, they were sort of nasty people. What ended up happening uh, for seven years, this is seven years that the Midianites who lived on the other side of a Jordan, whatever, that they would come in at harvest time and they would ransack the place where the Israelites were in Israel. And they would uh, steal their crops, they would, uh, you know, their animals, those kinds of things. And they would just come in, and it says this in Scripture, like a horde of locusts and just devour things, all right? And they would harm the people, and the Israelites would cower down, they would bunker in, they would be fearful, they would go into caves, other types of things. Because the Midianites were just tenacious at being bullies, year in and year out, bullying, discouraging, crushing, depressing. Israelites just put up with it, until finally, until finally they cried out, And they said, we cannot continue to do this. And so they made a decision to turn towards God, to turn towards Yahweh. And so they made that decision to make that turn. In Proverbs 3, 11, it says this. Do not despise the Lord's instructions. Despise the Lord's instruction, my son. And do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father, the son he delights in. He loves you too much to let you go living the way you are. He longs to be at the center of your life, so he is designed in troubles, and they are always for your good. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I'm mindful on any particular given Sunday that we are coming in here from different backgrounds. I'm not just talking historical backgrounds, upraising. I'm talking backgrounds of this last week, this last month, this summer. And some of you have been having a pretty smooth ride. Some of you have had a treacherous ride. Some of you are living in a lot of doubt and concern and fear right now. Catch it. Grab it. You got the moment? Where yet? If you are in a tough time right now, God's using that to get your attention about something. He's a loving, heavenly father. And though there may be discipline that comes, he is wanting to grab a hold and love you and restore you and take you in some directions maybe you never thought about going before. 
What's your first response when tough times come? Mine was, oh, my goodness, how am I going to close on my house? That's what I thought. All right? Second, God always sees more than we do. So they cried out, God sent them a prophet, and then he went and he picked down a guy. And he picked out a common guy. Just like if Jesus came in here, he maybe picked one of you. Right? Just, just common, ordinary guy. He picked Gideon. And Gideon was like, what's up, man? You know, hello? <laughs> and the angel of the Lord, and it's believed that this could be like a, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ coming, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, chapter 6, verse 12, he said, you loser, you're not worth anything. No. He said what? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. To which Gideon turned around and go, what? Where's the warrior? Right? God sees more than we do. And he's able to look through and see the heart, see the potential, see the aspirations. And he may very well be saying to you this morning, mighty warrior, and you're like, not me. Not me. I don't feel that way at all. So he sees things that we do not see. He begins to um, articulate um, what's going to happen. And he wants to use Gideon to be able to help deliver Israel from this treacherous enemy called the Midianites. I think one of the things Satan attacks the most is our identity in Christ and who we are as a believer. If I could open up the tape recordings in your mind concerning what you think about yourself as a believer, you'd probably be embarrassed sometimes. You look into the mirror, you watch your actions, and some of your reactions are not... And you begin to beat yourself up. And you begin to believe the lies of the adversary. That you are no good. That you are a loser. Why would God ever use you? You're never going to make it out of this problem. You're never going to turn the corner and your character become what it really needs to be. And we begin listening to those voices in our head rather than listening to the truth of Scripture and what Jesus wants to speak to us from our soul. And what Jesus speaks to us from our soul, he says that you're God's child, John 1.12. You're his friend, John 15.15. 15. You're his masterpiece, his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. You have been justified, Romans 5.1. Freed forever from condemnation from God, Romans 8, 1. You are adopted into his family, Ephesians 1, 5. And your citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, 20. And you belong to God, 1 Cor 6, 20. Never to be separated from his love again, Romans 8, 35. The truth is here. Listen to the truth. Don't listen to the lies. God sees you as his child, if you're a follower of his this morning. He sees you as freshly redeemed, 
redeemed. No condemnation in you. And he can use you, not because of you, but because of him living in you. And Jesus says, get up, mighty warrior. Let's face this tough time. I'm hanging. I'm hanging. I don't know. Call 911. I'm going to fall. This is scary. Right? Don't listen to the voice of the adversary who would seek to condemn you. The next thing is this. God confirms his priority with his presence. God confirms his priority with his presence. Verse 13. It says this. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But God, Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. There he is. Listen to what? Oh, I'm not anything. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. What if the angel of the Lord appeared to you this week in your problems and spoke that word? What's Gideon's response? Gideon says, well, if now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign (laughs) that it is really you talking to me. You've been there? I think God's impressing on my heart to do this, but oh my goodness. uh, That might just be because I ate bad pizza last time. I need a sign. Well, here he is with the angel of the Lord, and he believes that God is speaking to him through the angel of the Lord. He goes, he gets an offering, he places it on an altar, and the angel of the Lord touches it with his staff on the rock, and it's consumed with flames. Now I'm believing. Now I'm believing. Okay. Oh, that's good. The Lord is with me. It is him who has appeared. Can you recall a time in your life when you really felt the presence of God? Think about it. Maybe it's after a situation. I mean, Greg shared this morning about the passing of his father. The presence of the Lord was rich in the moments of that passing, still is, and the grieving. A time when you really felt the presence of the Lord. I had to think about that this week, and I went back, and I, I had like five or six things I could highlight. I know that I know God spoke to me then, and I know that I know his presence was with me then, Right? Well, why do we now doubt if we know that God was with us then? Does he run from us? Does he play games with us? Tricks with us? Ho! You're, okay, I'm now going to take off, and I'll see you at the end of the summer. No. His spirit dwells within us. This is the spirit of Jesus. So his presence is with us. It's a beautiful thing that we have on this side of the cross that they didn't have in the Old Testament back then. The Holy Spirit's presence was around, would come upon them, but the Holy Spirit's presence didn't dwell within them. And so when we get in these tough times and when we're doubting ourselves and those kinds of things, then we have the moment when God comes 
You grab a hold of that moment and let it stretch through your whole life until you see him face to face on the other side of this life. Because the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art nowhere to be found, for thou art with me. God confirms his priorities with his presence. And he knows some of the doubts and the fears that we have. Gideon's a real person, and we'll continue to see that as we journey on. The next is this. Private faithfulness precedes public usefulness. You see, when the, the, the offering that he gave was consumed in fire with the staff, then the Lord tells him to turn around and, and go out and say, why are these things in your backyard? What was in the backyard? There were altars to Baal and an Asherah pole. These were foreign gods. Somehow in the midst of the seven-year run, they had turned back to foreign gods, seeking out other kinds of deities. And right in his father's backyard were altars. Now, Jesus, he comes to us in the same kind of way. And we may not have idols to other gods in the backyard, but I tell you what, we have other gods in our house. And it may be a God of fame, it may be a God of popularity, it may be a God of, of uh, uh, money, it may be a God of a relationship or something, it may just be a, a, a God of self, like you want to determine your own way of doing things in life. And God would say to us, like he said to Gideon, what, what's this in the backyard? Judges 6.25, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down to Asherah beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God. Now, I love Gideon because he's just real like you and me. He's like, okay. But if I do that, I'm not going to be liked in the neighborhood. (laughs) So what he does is he goes out at nighttime. In the middle of the night, he tears down the altar, and he was supposed to take the altar, rebuild a new altar to God, and that kind of thing. So he does this. He tears that down, tears down the Asherah pole, those kinds of things, and uh, he builds this new altar to God, and then he slips back to his bedroom. (laughs) The next morning, the neighborhood comes down and goes, Whoa! What happened to the altars and the pole? Nobody knew. So scuttlebutt started happening in the neighborhood, down the community alleyways. What's happening? Who did this? Who did this? And word got to him. It was that Gideon guy. You know, the son of so-and-so. And so they show up at dad's house. Hey, your son tore down our altars. And he's like, what? We're going to kill him. Let us have him. Now, what would you do as a dad? No, you're not. Right? But there was the dad's altars. What's he messing around for? Right? And the dad says something, which is actually very wise. It's like, well, hey, these other gods, Baal, they're not, you don't need to baby them. If they're really God, then they'll deal with it and they'll kill him. And if they don't, then they weren't worth worshiping anyway. Nah. 
But here's the point. Private faithfulness precedes public usefulness. There are things that we need to get in order in our own house, in the interior souls of our life. Hanging out there in the trapeze there. What's God saying to you that you need to order and make straight? You can make amends. Maybe it's something that you need to confess not only to God. Maybe you need to go and ask for forgiveness to somebody else that you've offended. Maybe it goes back long years. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe it's some other kind of thing you've been pursuing and you know that you, you, you've got a hold of this. Or maybe it's, it's some hobby or a business or something. This is, and it's become, in reality, a God. Now, you wouldn't maybe believe this. I'll confess here. My wife has called me out before that I have a mistress. The mistress sometimes, and it happens with pastors, is the church. And you start living your life devoted more to the church than to your spouse. I've always had to realign my priorities continuously, almost like every quarter in my life. My four Ps. I'm a person first. I have a relationship with God. I'm a partner second. I have a relationship with my spouse. I'm a parent third. I have a relationship with my kids. And I'm a pastor number four. I have a relationship with the body of Christ. So it may be something that seemingly is good. But God says, realign it. Your devotion to me is not where it needs to be. So private faithfulness precedes public usefulness. The next is this. Number five. God is patient with our faith process. You would think, and I think it's what, verse 33. 33 is where the movie music needs to really start strumming it up. Oh my goodness, they got rid of the Astros Falls of all. You got the mighty warrior. Let's go. We're going to take on the Midianites, you know. And he goes out. Now all the Midianites, the Milakites, and the other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Azurites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh. These are different tribes, all right, of Israel, calling them to arms and also to Asher, to Zebulun, and Nephtali, so that they too went up to meet them. So, whoo, man, the epic movie's happening. Here's Gideon. He's getting everybody jacked and raised up. Let's go. Let's take on the Midianites, you know. He's got the army. We're ready to see the pinnacle of the movie happen. Except, verse 36, God, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, um, I will lay a fleece on the thrashing floor. If there is dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next morning. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out dew, a bowl full of water. But the ground around none. Then, verse 39. This is why I like this point. God is patient, even with our faith process. Gideon said to God, Okay, don't be angry with me. Ever been there? Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. 
And God accommodated Gideon, and he did. That doubt you have, you don't need to disown it. In fact, embrace it. There's something about your doubt that God's going to use to build a great faith. And every step of faith has a measure of doubt in it. A lot of times we think we want certainty in life. I want to know everything that's going to happen. God, are you going to sell my houses now that they're both empty and I'm not getting any revenue from them? I don't know. He may say, nope. They could be sitting empty, not moving the market for a good while. I don't know. I'm thinking I want certainty. But certainty actually in a relationship can lead to actual boredom. If you know everything for certain that's going to happen with your spouse or a friend, it doesn't. But what you want isn't certainty. What you want is trust. What you want is trust. Because if you're able to push through your doubt, clinging to your faith, and find trust in God, then you will increase the beauty and the dynamic and the love relationship you have with God. You're looking for trust. And to have trust, there's going to be some threads of doubt that come. And so God is patient with our faith process. And he says, I understand the doubt that you're going through in that situation. Trust me. And it's not like a blind trust. You're trying to get some reason and faith in that. When you come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not an unreasonable faith. Sometimes it goes beyond reason because you have a finite mind and you're trying to have a relationship with an infinite God. But God wants you to grab a hold of trust in him. And so he let Gideon throw out two fleeces, two fleeces. So Judges, chapter 7, the story unfolds this way. Early in the morning, Gideon and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her, Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, He shall go, but if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their heads, hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Now all the other men, let them go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites into their tents, but kept the 300 
who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below Gideon in the valley. The Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. Two football stadiums. Gideon had rallied 32,000. He thought that was pretty good. No match for the 135, but God's with us, right? Then God comes to him and says, get rid of the scaredy cats. I would have been in that group. So he (coughs) loses 22,000. He's got 10,000. God says, this isn't yet down to what I need. So he tells them, tells Gideon to sort them according to how they would drink. So if you got down on all your knees by a pool of water or lake or pond, you would be splashing the water up like this. You would set down your sword, your shield. You are not prepared for the enemy's attack. But if you kneel, spear in hand, and you scoop, then you're prepared. So God wanted those who were not fearful and those who were smart. Gideon really didn't matter to him about those two things. All he was looking at was the numbers. I now have a ratio of 450 Midianites to my one soldier. I got 300 people that know how to drink water. (laughs) Thank you very much. What do you think he thought? That's what he's thinking. We're not going to unroll the rest of the story other to say that they won. What happened was he in the middle of the night and he wanted word that God was with him again. A little bit of doubt. God sends him down into the camp. He spooks around and he hears the overcoming that they had somebody had a dream. And the dream had to do with something that referenced that they were going to be destroyed by the Israelites. So there was already fear bubbling in the camp. They didn't know what was up on the mountain peaks but they were down to 300 people. The others were sent back to their tents or sent home. They took the horn in one hand, and they took a torch in the other hand, but they put a vessel on top of it so they couldn't see the light of the torch, a clay vessel. And he put 100 on this side of the valley, 100 snuck around on another side, another snuck around on another side, so he had three sets of 100 people, and they were supposed to blow their horns. And when they blew their horns, they were supposed to say, for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon, for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And when they did that, they were supposed to crash their canisters, their clay pots, and then the bright torches would sign. So they would be blowing in one horn. The sound would echo in the valley. The torches were lit around. And the Midianites got so scared in the middle of the night waking up that they turned on one another, started killing one another, and they ended up scurrying and leaving, and even those who left ended up getting tracked down and killed. God came through. 300 against 135,000. They were so decimated, the Midianites were, that they never, ever again bothered the Israelites. They were done. In fact, we don't even hear the Midianites after that. God came through. God came through.
Friends, victory is determined by God's power, not ours. Now, it's easy for me to say that. It's another thing to live it out. I don't know what might come my way this week. But victory, success, is determined by God's power and not yours. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. In order that Israel, in order that the awakening church may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. My illustration last week, why this has been resonating in my heart, was we shared that we as a church, um, we've been on a great ride through the three years that I've been here, some ups and downs, those kinds of things, and heading back up in some ways, pretty cool, it's great to see a great group here today, but we cannot financially support what we are currently paying for our rent in this building and the building next door, and I mentioned last week that sometime in the between now and the end of the year, we may very well lose part, if not all, the next door building so that we can um, live within our means as a church because I'm committed to doing that. God challenges us to give. We live within our means. But you have to know this. I, as a pastor, in the last couple months, have been in that place where I'm like, really? 300 people that know how to drink water? I'm not referring to you guys. That's not the stuff of faith because I think you're mighty warriors and you're really hanging tough and pushing through things. But I like having 11,000 square feet. I like having a children's building and a student ministry building. But when you pay almost 14,000 a month in rent for a church of our size, it does not work. And what God's got to have for us, another place, another uh, way to reconfigure this building, something else around the corner. We've been looking all kinds of directions, and I'm trusting God, and I believe God really does have something pretty cool for us. I'm just being honest with you. But in the meantime, guess what? I feel all those things. Tough times. God's getting our attention. He's seeing more than we do. He's confirming his priorities through his presence and the dynamic of what's happening with us as a body. I believe that the hard work is being done for us to be privately faithful and turn things. I'm always asking God, what is it we need to be doing as individuals, as a church, to be able to see your power work in our midst? God's patient with our faith process, and I'm resting assured that victory is going to be determined, not by our strength, but by God's power. I can't see a big-time miracle happen unless we get to a place where it's only God. I've been in ministry situations that I can manage. And I can envision and I can budget. But I've also been in ministry situations where, oh, my goodness, only God. This is one of those times for us as a body. And so it's not a fearful time. I really believe it's a trust-building, rallying time around our great God. But I feel like I'm hanging in midair. Capture the three things again. The letting go, the waiting, and the grabbing hold. The letting go, the waiting, and the grabbing hold. Where are you on your particular faith journey right now? The letting go is a step of faith. I trust God. I'm going to let go. I'm going to make the jump. 
in the middle, hanging in midair, is some of the doubt. But when God grabs a hold of you, there's that trust. He uses our doubt and our faith to build trust. And to that I say, bring it on. Doesn't mean I'm not scared like Gideon was. But bring it on. Because that's the epic that I want to be a part of. Ortberg says this, Waiting is the in-between time when I have responded to God, but things are not yet the way I want them to be. And I keep obeying, and I keep trusting, and I keep saying yes, and hold out my hands. God, I can't make things turn out the way I want them to be. I don't have control. The flyer can do nothing. Now, it doesn't mean nothing in the sense of that you're not obeying and trusting and seeking him. But literally, sometimes you're there in midair. What do I do? Wait. He will not let you fall. Not one father or mother in here would intentionally allow their child to fall to brokenness, doom, or even death if they couldn't step in and grab them. How much more? With the God who created you, the Father, love you. You can trust him. He will grab you. I'm going to ask Joe to come up. We're going to close with a song of worship. But the first Sunday of every month, we also want to be able to have a time to pray for people who may need physical or emotional healing. It's interesting. James 5.14 says this. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in what? Faith. Will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. As we sing this last song, I'm going to pray for us. I want you to take the opportunity to reach out to God. Maybe as you sing this song about His glory, maybe you're in doubt, you need to grab a hold of the doubt. You can't grab a hold of Him. He'll grab a hold of you. And you offer it back to God and you say, help me wait. Maybe it's an issue in your life. Maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And there's tons of doubt concerning a faith. I want you to know that you can trust Him can trust him. You can have questions answered, but I tell you what, even if you had every question answered, when it comes to having a personal relationship and faith in Christ, you have to let go and trust him. And he will not let you go. So whatever the Lord's ministering to your heart, please just speak to him about that. You don't have to sing. You can stay seated. For those of you who hear this morning, there's a physical or maybe an emotional need, a brokenness in your life that you need God to touch you. I'm going to ask you to do something bold. As we stand to sing, I want you to come up here to a mosh pit. You're not going to be called out or anything. Just continue to worship until the song's done. But when the song's done, I want you to have a seat in these front chairs. And some people from our prayer team are going to do what this James passage says. If any of us sick, call.
call the elders, spiritual leaders of the church, anoint them with oil, and the prayer offered in faith can make the sick person well. We don't believe in faith healing, but we do believe in divine healing. But many times, it's our faith issue that needs to exercise the divine healing. God waited on Gideon to step out, to make some things right. So if you'd like to be prayed for, for physical healing or emotional issue that's going on in your life, just come, stand at the front. When the music's done, we'll put on some soft music. You can have a seat, and the prayer team will minister to you, anointing you with oil. It's not a scary thing. It's really a beautiful thing. A lot of times we have not because we ask not. And we always want to give provision and opportunity for you to pray. Maybe it's some spiritual need. You can ask of that too. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song. The ushers are going to come to receive your connection cards, your group cards, whatever group you'd like to be in, and the Lord's tithes and offerings as we honor him. Will you pray with me? Father, today we are so grateful that we can have a trust relationship with you. Lord, build our faith to let go. Strengthen us in the waiting period, even when it seems like maybe we're falling. And Lord, May you show yourself mighty and true in our midst as individuals, in our midst as a church, grabbing a hold of us and taking us forward to where you want us to be. So, Lord, we commit this time to you, a ministry time, working in our hearts as we worship and as people are prayed over. Amen.